0: We pray, O Lord, for our children. We thank You for them. We remember that our children are a gift from You. And we pray, O Lord, that You would teach us to disciple them. Help us disciple them well. And we pray that as we come to Your Word, as we study Your Word, as we see the Gospel in Your Word, we pray that it would take root in their hearts and that in due time they would savingly believe. We pray, O Lord, as we come to your word, that your word would comfort us, that it would afflict us if we need to be afflicted. We pray that it would instruct us. We remember that your word is equipped for every good work. And we wish to do this for the honor and the glory of Christ in this dark world. So please, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, give us understanding. And not only understanding, but conviction to apply your word to our lives, in order that Christ may be glorified in all that we do. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to John chapter 13. We'll be looking at John chapter 13 verses 18. To thirty today. John chapter fourteen verses 18 to 30. There's an old joke about country music, and you've probably all heard it, but it's that if you play a country song backwards, and who, a really nice story about a guy whose dog comes back to life, whose wife comes home, and who gets his job back. Uh, and we, we laugh at it, we've heard it, because there's some truth to that, produced some of the most pathetically sad songs that you can find. You know, if you listen to the lyrics of Hank Williams's song, I'm So Lonely I Could Cry, for Merle Haggard's classic Misery and Gin, uh, you, you start to see a kind of a common theme in these songs, uh, in, in the country genre, and that is that you find these songs that are so sad that from a distance, they're almost laughable. And yet, The subject matter of these songs actually isn't laughable at all. Many of these songs that are so sad deal with the issue of betrayal, which, as you would know if you've ever been betrayed, isn't funny at all. There's nothing funny about betrayal. In fact, I don't think anybody can argue against the fact that betrayal is easily one of the most painful things that anybody has to deal with in life. And what a comfort it is to know that when we do face that, Jesus can identify. Jesus knew the pain of betrayal, and he knew it well. Uh, we've, what we've seen so far in John chapter 13 of John's gospel is that Jesus has washed the feet of the disciples at the event that we refer to as the Last Supper. And we saw that there were really two purposes to it. It was an example for the disciples to follow, yes, in serving one another in in humble, sacrificial love. But it was also, first and foremost, an object lesson designed to teach us of our need to regularly come to Jesus for cleansing. And yet Jesus, while he was doing this, dropped a hint for us and for the disciples about what was about to happen He washed all their feet and then He told them, not all of you are clean. He wasn't talking about their feet, of course. Now John told us that Jesus said this with His betrayer and ghastly in mind. The abhorrent and ghastly betrayal that Jesus hinted at will now be set into motion as we continue studying this chapter. You have to wonder, how did Jesus know, and yet the disciples didn't know, how did Jesus know that He was about to be betrayed? There are a few answers. Let's start with the obvious one. Uh, maybe somebody told Him. Maybe, um, maybe because He's both fully man and fully God, maybe uh, the Father told Him. Maybe, it's, I mean, it's possible. He, I mean, He experienced a communion with the Father, a fellowship with the Father, a close intimacy with the Father that no other had. And so it's entirely possible that somebody else revealed it to not or that the Father revealed to Jesus that he was about to be betrayed. But I don't think that this is the only way that Jesus knew. In fact, I don't even think it's necessarily the most probable way that Jesus knew. Because a second way that Jesus could have known that He was about to be betrayed is by reading the Old Testament Scriptures. Because there are so many prophecies found in the Old Testament which actually pointed to the fact that the Messiah would be betrayed. Uh, So prophecy could have revealed this to Jesus. Jesus may have understood exactly what was going to happen because it's foretold in the Old Testament. And prophecy is important. It, it, It feeds Christianity apart from every other Ideology, every other philosophy, every other religion in the world, because throughout Scripture, what we see is some very, very specific prophecies uh, get fulfilled. Prophecies about, for example, when Jesus would be born, Uh, prophecies about where he would be born and what he would do for Jerusalem for the Passover. There are all kinds of prophecies throughout the Old Testament about kings, about empires, about nations, about events that were going to transpire, all of which we see fulfilled, thus validating the truthfulness of the Scriptures. In the passage that we come to today, Jesus will prophesy. He'll foretell of something that is about to happen, His betrayal. Eleven of the disciples had absolutely no clue what was going on. They had absolutely no idea that this was about to happen. They're completely clueless to the fact that their Lord, their Messiah, is about to be betrayed by one of them. That He would be arrested. That He would be tried before Pontius Pilate. And that He would be nailed to a cross the next day where He would die a sinner's death. And so as these events all unfold very quickly we'll see that the point of this passage is that we must examine ourselves to make sure that our hearts are truly devoted to christ because the person who turns away from christ risks entering into what you would call an eternal night a never-ending spiritual darkness so jesus having told the disciples that they and, and, and that we are blessed If we serve His sheep in the same way that He served His sheep, that is, with humility, with love, with uh, self-sacrifice, Jesus now turns His attention back to this issue. The fact that one of the disciples isn't clean. As He warns that this blessing that He has just talked about will not be experienced by all of the disciples. So we start in verses 18-20, to we read this. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the Scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up. When it does occur, you may believe that I am He. Let's just stop there. He says, I do not speak not of all of you. He's talking about this blessing. I do not speak of all of you. In other words, the blessing that can be found in giving ourselves away, in in serving Christ's sheep in service to them, will not be known or not be experienced by all of the disciples. In fact, he wasn't even instructing all of the disciples to serve one another. He wasn't instructing the one who wasn't clean. He wasn't speaking to Judas. See, a goat has no place among the sheep. A goat has no place among the sheep, much less does a goat have any responsibility or privilege of serving the sheep. No, the blessing of serving the sheep does not belong to a goat at all. And even if they were to sneak in and find a way to pass themselves off as sheep, which happens, by the way, they will still not know the blessing that Jesus has promised because they cannot and they will not do it from the right motives. They won't do it from a position of love. They won't do it from a position of humility. They won't do it self sacrificially, the way that Jesus served his sheep self sacrificially. So then, to whom is Jesus speaking? He tells us when He says, I know the ones I have chosen. So the chosen ones are the only ones capable and qualified to experience this blessing. So there's this distinction. There's an implied distinction being made among the disciples. There were some who were chosen, but not all of them were. Some of them were elect chosen by God in eternity past, by grace alone. More, It's interesting that Jesus says that He knows the ones that He has chosen. So it's not that He doesn't know the person who wasn't chosen. It's not that He doesn't know Judas in a relational sense. He does know Judas. Of course He did. And it wasn't that He didn't know Judas in, a, in an intimate, you know, very personal sense either. They spent three years together. So of course He knows a lot about Judas. Uh, of course, he knows everything about Judas. They spent three years ago, so three years together. So, what does Jesus mean? What he means is that he has set his love unconditionally upon those he has chosen, upon most of them, but not all of them. All the disciples were chosen as disciples by Jesus, yes, but not all of them were elect. And so Jesus continues saying, but it is that the Scripture may be fulfilled. Here's the prophecy that I was talking about. But the Scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Now, one of the things, if you look down at your Bible, one of the things that you should notice when you're reading your Bible is when the words are in italics or there's some other kind of designation, like the word it is should have some kind of designation there um, in italics or or whatever. Some kind of designation that informs us that those words weren't in the original, but that they've been added by the translators for the sake of clarity to make a, a more accurate or more understandable translation. In this case, however, I actually think that the sentence reads better without those words. Uh, it would say, but that the scripture may be fulfilled, he who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. So Jesus informs the disciples in verse 19 that the reason that he's telling them what is about to transpire is why? So that they would believe that he is he, that I am he, he says once again you'll notice that the word he there is in italics at the end that it's added by the translators and we know that when Jesus talks like this when he says so that you may know that I am what's he really saying there what he's really saying is I am God it's a reference back to Exodus chapter 3 verse 14 so When he uses those words, I am, or in the Greek, ego eimi, we know that he's referring to himself as Yahweh, as God incarnate. So the purpose of this prophecy, the purpose of informing them that something was about to happen, that there was a distinction to be found among them, the purpose in telling them that he was about to be betrayed was in order that they may savingly believe in him and believe that he is God incarnate. Now we should note that verse 18 includes a reference to a passage in the Old Testament. And it's actually a very, very significant passage. In fact, I've read this book I don't know how many times, but it wasn't until this week when I started studying that I realized how incredibly significant it is. The the passage that gets quoted here is from the 41st Psalm, where David writes this in verse 9. He says, "...even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. So this is one of those places in which the, Old, or the New Testament sheds light on the Old Testament. and It helps us understand the Old Testament because on the surface, Psalm 41 verse 9 might not seem like it's intended to be prophetic, but it was. In fact, David wrote it in circumstances that were probably very similar to the circumstances that Jesus finds himself in here in John chapter 13. Because when David wrote this, it was most likely referring to what happened during the rebellion of his son Absalom. The uprising of Absalom, who, who wanted David's throne, right? He, he wanted to be the, the king. It happened so quickly and with such force that David was forced to flee from the city of Jerusalem. But David isn't writing about being betrayed by Absalom here. No, he was talking about the betrayal that he experienced by his friends and by his confidants, as you might call them. Those with whom he had broken bread. A significant detail in the parallel between these two stories. These are people who he had sought counsel from as king who had betrayed him. And among those who shared these types of intimate experiences with David was a man named Ahithophel. Try to say that fast five times. Ahithophel had decided to give his counsel not to David, but to his son Absalom in his rebellion, advising Absalom how to overthrow David successfully. David knew that Ahithophel was a very wise counselor. He was one of David's best counselors, which scared David, understandably. He knew that he understood how to plan an attack. He knew that his advice was very, very trustworthy. And the fact that he was giving his advice, not to David, but to Absalom, David didn't know what to do. We read in 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 31, Now someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray, make the counsel of Ahithophel foolishness. And that prayer was immediately given, and that prayer was answered. God didn't cause Ahithophel to give poor advice or poor counsel to Absalom. Instead, Absalom perceived the advice as foolishness. And thus, he disregarded it. He didn't follow Ahithophel's advice. And we see a lot of parallels here between what David experienced in his betrayal and what Jesus experiences in the betrayal of Judas. But Perhaps the most noteworthy parallel is found in the fate of Ahithophel. We read this in 2 Samuel 17, verse 23. Now when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and arose and went to his home, to his city, and set his house in order and strangled himself. Thus he died and was buried in the grave of his father. And so both Ahithophel and Ahithophel And Judas died by hanging themselves after betraying their respective kings. We can all probably relate to some extent or another with both of these stories. We understand that it hurts to be hated by anybody, right? We don't like to be disliked or hated by anybody, but we expect our enemies to hate us. We expect that. We might not like that they hate us, but it doesn't hurt that they hate us. It doesn't hurt anywhere near as much as being betrayed by a close and trusted companion. The danger that's faced by anybody who's betrayed is that they become hard-hearted. That they become jaded and cynical about relationships and about people in general. That bitterness, just kind of a general distrust for others, settles into the heart of the person betrayed. And that's a dangerous, dangerous place to be. But what's noteworthy in our story about Jesus here is that this doesn't happen to him. No bitterness settles into his heart. He doesn't become jaded. He doesn't become hard-hearted. Instead, he felt troubled in his spirit. Let's continue with verses 20-22. Jesus says, "...truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send, receives Me. And he who receives Me, receives him who sent Me. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit." and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray Me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one He was speaking. So verse 20, it kind of gives us a general preview of, of what's coming in the distance, uh, when, when Jesus commissions His disciples with the preaching of the gospel and the making of disciples to the ends of the earth. But He understands that when He sends them to bring the gospel, that those who reject the gospel will be rejecting Jesus Himself. To reject Jesus is to reject God. Follow the chain here? To reject the gospel is to reject Jesus. To reject Jesus is to reject God. And this carries absolutely terrifying implications for anybody who rejects the gospel and thus rejects Christ as Judas is about to turn from Christ in ultimate rejection. And Jesus knows it. So instead of becoming gone cold or hard-hearted or jaded or cynical over the upcoming betrayal, John tells us that he becomes troubled in his spirit. Do you see how that relates? How, how being troubled in his spirit relates to verse 20? Because the consequences that are implied in verse 20 will apply to Judas. He understands and he sees clearly that Judas's soul is in the darkest place imaginable and it's heading for an even worse place. He's fully aware of the fact that the same disciples who the same disciple who moaned and whined and complained about Jesus being anointed with a bottle of perfume worth 300 denarii is about to sell Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. How dark does your heart have to be how how dark does your soul have to be to sell it? and to seal your fate for just 30 pieces of silver. That's not rich. That's just a little bribe. How dark does your soul have to be to say, that's worth my soul? When Jesus says anything that starts with the words, truly, truly, or verily, verily, depending on what translation you use, it's not that it has a mere possibility of being true or of transpiring. No, the words truly, truly or verily, verily remind us to listen very closely to what Jesus is about to say because it is good as gold. It is true. If it's something that's going to happen, it is going to happen, guaranteed. What's amazing to see is that the disciples, when they're told that Jesus is about to be betrayed, when He tells them, they are just completely stunned. They're completely confused because not a single one of them apparently had any idea that this was about to take place. They had no idea what Jesus was talking about. What? Somebody's about to betray you? One of them was, was going to betray their master, the Lord Jesus? And so they're, they're confused. They're, they're not sure what to make of it. They don't know who it could be who could it possibly be? They apparently hadn't heard any chatter. They hadn't overheard any rumors. They hadn't heard of any conspiracies or anything that would hint that anyone was plotting such a wicked and evil thing. So they're completely clueless about this. But the thing that strikes me so profoundly about this reaction by the disciples is that none of them knew the dark, dark place that Judas' soul was headed. None of them saw the condition of Judas's soul as this was unfolding. None of them suspected him at all. None of them said, oh, well I've been noticing Judas. He's kind of been stealing some money from you know, the coffer. He's been taking some of, some of our money. So you know what? I, I bet you it's him. Nobody has any idea that it's him. As far as they're concerned, he's one of the family. He's an equal among them. None of them suspected Him at all. And that is a vinkered and powerful reminder, friends, of how difficult, how incredibly difficult it is to accurately assess the condition of another person's soul. How difficult it is to tell when somebody who seems to be following Jesus isn't really one of the indication uh, indications of a soul that is in a dark place is when they're caught in sin and they are just completely unrepentant about it. Unrepentant sin is definitely an indication of a soul that's in in a very dark and dangerous place. Uh, think about the young man who is having relations with his stepmother in First Corinthians chapter five. Uh, that, that's what Paul refers to. Was it a It was difficult um, for them to deal with it, but was it difficult to ascertain that this young man's soul was in a dark place? Was it hard to tell that he was in a bad place, spiritually speaking? Not at all, because he was in this sin that he was perfectly comfortable with, and he was just continually doing it. It was pretty easy to tell that his soul was in a bad place. That's why Paul instructs them to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. But what about somebody who's not in a sin that everybody in the world can see? What about somebody who's talking the talk and walking the walk? Because that's Judas. That's what he appeared to be doing all along. Talking the talk and walking the walk. Until he actually goes all the way through with the betrayal of Jesus, nobody suspects that Judas Iscariot of the one who was about to betray Jesus. But this reminds us of the parable of the wheat and the tares, doesn't it? Listen to the, the parable of the wheat and the tares. In Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 to 30, this is what we read. Jesus presented another parable to them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest, and in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. See, tares on the surface, looked just like wheat until the harvest. Until you harvested them. and they, they didn't have grain. It was just a weed. It, it was only at the harvest time that the wheat and the tares could be distinguished from one another. Jesus follows this up with a, a couple more parables, but then we read in verse 36, the, the disciples, at the end of the day, they're still confused about this. So they come back to Jesus, still perplexed and unable to understand this parable of the wheat and tares, and they ask him for an explanation, which is a great move, by the way. We find that explanation starting in verse 37 of chapter 13 of Matthew, where Matthew writes, And he said, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. "...and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels." So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now a word to the wise as you consider this parable. This parable should deeply, deeply instill the fear of God in you. The parable is a picture of the visible church. See, there are two churches. There's the visible church, and then there's the invisible church. There's the church that gathers and people who claim to be Christians, and then there are legitimate Christians. And it tells us, this parable tells us, that there will be true and false converts. Legitimate mixed together. There will be non-Christians who claim to be Christians mixed in with legitimate Christians. And we won't always be able to distinguish between the two. And in fact, uprooting them is not our job because if we were to try to uproot them, what would we do? We would select wrongly. We'd actually uproot some legitimate Christians in doing so. So that's not our responsibility. Now, maybe in time, the Proverbial tares will fall away from the faith as apostates. It happens. People fall away from the faith. They renounce their faith. They renounce any affiliation with the Lord Jesus for whatever reason. That will reveal their true nature as tares. Or maybe they'll be ensnared by a sin that they refuse to repent of, that they refuse to turn from, like the case of the young man who was having relations with his stepmother in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We exercise church discipline in such a a case in hopes of the person repenting and being reconciled to the Lord and to his people, which, by the way, is exactly what happened to that young man in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, We find out in 2 Corinthians that he did repent. But Judas... Iscariot reminds us that it's not always possible for us to correctly assess the condition of the souls of others. In fact, he us that it is very, very difficult, dangerously difficult. Ultimately, Jesus tells us, the wheat and the tares were created at the end of, of the age by the angels. So two applications here. Number one, we must be extremely careful, extremely cautious about passing any kind of judgment on the condition of the souls of others. And number two, we would be very wise to keep all of this in mind and to examine ourselves regularly to ensure that we are not like Judas. That we're not practicing the kind of lawlessness that's characteristic of the tares the disciples are perplexed they're they're confused about what Jesus has told them about what he has revealed Matthew tells us in in his account of this he says being deeply grieved they each one began to say to him surely not I Lord no and that was the right question for them to ask notice that when they're asking that question that nobody's saying surely not Peter surely not John surely not this guy or that guy or whoever no instead of pointing fingers they're examining themselves they're inquiring about their own selves but here's the gist of this application and it's it's very very important one if we are regularly examining our hearts before the Lord as we ought to it is virtually a sure thing that our souls are not in a dark place if we are examining ourselves regularly as we ought to be, if we are examining ourselves are the Lord truly, then it is virtually guaranteed that our souls are not in a dark place. The person whose soul is in a dark place doesn't examine themselves before the Lord. They can't stand to. They can't stand to. They, they At least they go through the motions maybe. They may even fool themselves. They, they at least fool everyone around them But it's very likely that such a person is actually aware of the fact that they're just kind of going through the motions. That it's not really doing anything for them. But maybe there are social benefits. Maybe there are other benefits. But most of the time, I think they are very keenly aware of the fact that they are just going through the motions. And they get tired of it eventually. That's where apostasy comes in. In the words of Richard Phillips, he says, quote, "...it is virtually certain that those who inquire of the Lord about their own hearts will not be the ones to bring trouble." End quote. The most despicable reaction to this revelation that Jesus gives them, the most despicable reaction in any of the Gospel accounts, is what we're told Judas says. Matthew twenty-six twenty-five tells us that Judas looked at Jesus and said, "...is it I, Rabbi?" Like, you have got to be kidding. Judas knew that it was him. He's already made a deal with the religious leaders who want him to betray them. He's already made a deal with the devil. He has a long history of lending his ear to the devil. This was just a wicked, wicked response to Jesus revealing that he knew that he was about to be betrayed. Let me ask you this though, what should Judas's response have been here when Jesus reveals I'm about to be betrayed? What should Judas have done? He should have repented. He should have repented and begged for mercy. And that's exactly what any of us should do if while we're examining ourselves we find our faith or our obedience or anything about us to be lacking in true, obedient faith and devotion unto Christ. Repent. Beg for mercy. God is quick, quick to show mercy. Apostasy and vain professions of faith are a very real danger, not only to every church, but to every Christian. That's something that we should constantly be aware of but don't get caught pointing fingers at others before you examine yourself. We must examine ourselves regularly to make sure that our own hearts, first and foremost, are truly devoted to Christ because the person who turns away from Jesus risks entering into the eternal night, a never-ending spiritual darkness. Let's continue looking at verses 23 to 30. John writes, There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of His disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to Him and said to Him, Thus, tell us who it is is of whom he's speaking. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to Him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. Now no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things that we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So, after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. Interesting hints at the relational dynamics between the disciples and Jesus. To understand what's taking place and and where everybody's seated and the relational dynamics that are kind of taking place here, you first have to eliminate that picture that all of us have seen of Jesus and the disciples at the Last Supper that was painted by Leonardo da Vinci because it didn't look anything like that. (laughs) In that painting, everybody is seated upright. Nobody's leaning, uh, even though the text says that they were leaning. Uh, In that painting, everybody's seated upright and uh, they're at a very medieval... Uh, Western-style table and chairs. Uh, no, the men would have been seated at a very low table, uh, a table shaped like a U, and each would be leaning on their left elbow with their feet uh, projecting out from under the table and going away from the table, and they would then use their right hand to eat. So that they're, they're leaning on their left elbow using their, their right hand to eat. So Jesus would have been seated at the head of the table, and those by his side were in positions that would have been considered to be uh, positions of honor and and respect. But what's very clear uh, as we consider this is that John was seated right beside the right hand of Jesus, so that he was leaning into Jesus's chest, into his bosom. Now, we see that John doesn't specify that it's him. He, he simply says, there is reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Uh, and, and that's a, a phrase or itself uh, or an identity that we'll see a few more times throughout this book. He'll refer, refer to himself a few more times this way before the book's finished. But how do we know that that reference is actually to John himself though? Uh, and I'd start by saying, well, it, it Makes the most sense because he does refer to the other disciples by name. Um, but there's only one disciple who isn't really referred to by name ever, and that's John. Um, But it's generally throughout history been believed that it was John because at the end of John's gospel, John makes it very clear that it was him. He writes in John chapter 21 verse 24 of the disciple who is loved by Jesus. This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things. So the disciple whom Jesus loved is the author of this book and the author of this book is John. So John is the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now while Peter is often um, perceived or considered to be the the leader of the disciples, uh, it's pretty clear here that he doesn't always lead the disciples. Sometimes he's just the first one to say something kind of foolish, Uh, but he's not the one who's seated next to Jesus at Jesus's right hand. John is and so Peter as bewildered by this news as anyone else that that Jesus is about to be betrayed he turns to John and says tell us who it is of whom he is speaking isn't it interesting to note those John assumes that John would know he thinks John, if, any, if anybody knows, John would know who it is. He doesn't say to John, hey John, ask Jesus who he's, refer, uh, who he's referring to. He doesn't even say that. He figures John would know if anybody knows. So ironically, rather than showing Peter to be the leader of the disciples here, we see that he doesn't see himself as being the one who would be the most likely to know who would betray Jesus. He thinks John would know. Being in a position in which he was already reclining on Jesus, he was already very close to Jesus. John's able to just kind of kind of lean back and tilt his head to the side, and there he was, face-chin without it drawing in such close proximity that he could kind of whisper, he could he could ask a question without it drawing any attention to himself. And the text makes it pretty clear that this was a private conversation that took quietly asks Jesus, Lord, who is it? And the Lord responds by saying, basically, watch me, John. The disciple that I give the piece of bread to after I dip it in the wine, that's the guy. Now there's a lesson here, I think, about being close to the Jesus, isn't there? Of course there is. The one who's closest to the heart of Christ is able to gain truth, able to gain insight that those who aren't close to Jesus won't gain. And and there's a further lesson here about uh, about going straight to Jesus with questions. Straight to the Lord with questions or concerns that we might have. Isn't it kind of strange that Peter goes to John instead of going straight to Jesus? Couldn't he have gone straight to Jesus with this question? Of course he could have. But he goes to John. But A. W. Pink writes this of John's position on Christ's bosom. He says, quote, "This is the blessed portion and privilege of every Christian. Rather, than, alas, that so many are like Peter on this occasion, ready to turn to a brother rather than to the Lord Himself." Why is it that when the average Christian meets with some difficulty in his reading of the Word or some problem in his spiritual life, he says, I will ask or write, brother, so-and-so, why not enjoy the blessed privilege of referring directly to the Lord Jesus? End quote. And by the way, that isn't to say that you should never ask a friend or never ask your pastor for help. It is to say that you should always be sure to spend time in, in prayer and meditation when you come to a passage or an issue that you're struggling with. But those who draw near to the Lord's heart will find priceless truths and insight that you won't be able to gain from a distance. Now there's a very subtle su- suggestion. Judas was also clearly seated in very close proximity to Jesus. Jesus. It's even possible, maybe it's even likely, that Judas Iscariot himself was seated at Jesus' left hand in a position that, just like John has, seated after all, his right hand. Signifies honor and, and respect and, and favor. After all, it didn't catch anybody else's attention as being kind of odd that Jesus dipped a morsel in wine and only handed it to Judas and not to anybody else. Well, why would that not seem weird to anybody else unless Judas was seated right next to him? Nobody said, Hey, Jesus, I want some too. So Jesus probably had Judas at his left hand. We should understand that in in that culture, for the host to share food from his own plate with a guest was an expression of honor. R.C. Sproul once noted, quote, in the ancient Near East, to be shared was considered a heinous crime, but far more... But I don't want you to miss one very important thing in the midst of all of this. I don't want you to miss Jesus' attitude toward Judas. Don't miss the grace and the compassion of Jesus in this moment. He knows what's going on. He knows what's about to happen. He knows where Judas's heart is. He knew that Judas' soul was in a dark, dark place and that Judas was about to betray Him. And yet, He gives Judas one opportunity and one reason after another and after another to repent. Dark heart. Change the course and the trajectory of his cold, dark heart. He thereby gives us yet another example to follow in, doesn't He? When somebody has betrayed you, when somebody has wronged you, can you show the grace and compassion? And... Instead of taking the morsel of bread, Judas should have declined it and said, Lord, You know it all. You see my heart, and why are you showing me so much grace? Why are you showing me so much compassion and honor in this moment? All I can do is beg for mercy and ask that you would shine the light of your love on my cold, dark heart. I can't go through with what I've planned. That's what Judas should have done at this point. But he didn't. And so we read after the morsel, after taking the morsel. Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Which the disciples still didn't understand. They thought something else was going on. So they didn't hear the response that Jesus gave to John. That was in close proximity. This whole thing with Judas, that was in close proximity. Now we know that Judas was already dealing with the devil. We saw back in verse 2 of this chapter. So was, the wheels were already turning. The, the, the plan was already in place. Judas had already been giving his ear to the devil long, long before this point right here. Satan had convinced him to use his position to steal money from Jesus and the disciples as we learned earlier. But Judas reminds us, friends, of the danger of playing with sin. It's not a toy to play with. It is a poison to avoid. It always takes us so much further than we initially think it will. We think it's going to take us to Las Vegas with all the glitz and glamour, but no, it drives right through Las Vegas and it goes to the valley of death and it drops you off there. Sin always takes us further than we think it's going to take us. Listen to the words of J.C. Royal. He writes this. He says, "...once let a man begin tampering thoughts of the devil, and he never knows how far he may fall. Trifling with the first thoughts of sin, making light of evil ideas when first offered to our hearts, allowing Satan to talk to us and flatter us and put bad notions into our hearts all this may seem a small matter to many it is precisely at this point that the road to ruin often begins he that allows Satan to sow wicked seeds wicked thoughts will soon find within his heart a crop of wicked habits happy is he who really believes that there is a devil and believing watches and prays daily that he may be kept from him temptations end quote Friends, I beg you to remember that there really is a real devil. There really is a real enemy of your soul. He still to this day prowls prowls around like a lion seeking someone to devour. Don't let it be you. Don't let it be you. What prideful foolishness it is to, to play with sin like it's a toy. And to lend your ear to the devil. Don't be ignorant of his ways. He wants to undo you. He wants to undo you in order that he can diminish the glory of God that's displayed in the redemption of sinners. Our only response is to watch over our hearts, watch over our souls, and to resist when he comes knocking, knowing that Scripture promises that if we resist him, he will... Flee. like ahithophel judas didn't even realize that while betraying his king while betraying jesus by giving an inch and then a mile to the devil or he was yes he was orchestrating jesus's demise but he was also orchestrating his own sinful and shameful demise john tells us that as judas went out it was night and so it is in the soul of all who reject the free offer of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He is the only way. Jesus is the only way to be reconciled with God. And to reject Him is to reject God. To reject Jesus is to reject The one mediator who stands between man and God. To reject Jesus is to the free offer of grace. The free offer of redemption through His atoning sacrifice. And so to reject Jesus, therefore, is to accept the eternal wrath of God against your own sin. It's serious stuff. And so we have to be regularly examining ourselves to ensure that our hearts truly are devoted to Christ because the person who turns away from Christ risks entering into an eternal night, a never-ending spiritual darkness, just like Judas does at the end of our text here. Do not play with sin. The good news is that if you have heard this A, God has ordained that you would be here to hear this warning and and that you would have a chance to respond by repenting and believing in Jesus. And secondly, it's still true. It is still true, friends, that Jesus offers the bread of life unto unworthy sinners. Regardless of who you are, regardless of what you've done, He will never cast away any who come to him. All the Father gives him will come to him, and he says, I will never cast them out. That's a promise who persevere and live by, and that's a promise that applies to all who persevere in the faith. Grace, by the grace of God preserving us. Let's pray. Our most merciful God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the work that it does in us. We thank You for the assurances that Your Word gives us, and we thank You for the warnings that Your Word gives us. And Lord, we pray that we would take these warnings very seriously. Teach us, O Lord, to examine the depth that we would of our own hearts. Teach us, O Lord, to fear that we would be like Judas, that we would go through the motions for years only to walk away from Jesus. Teach us, O Lord, to examine our hearts in Your presence and to seek regular cleansing from Christ. We pray, O Lord, that that our church body but that not only be visible, not only would we be all professing Christ, but that we would be truly possessing Christ. We pray, O Lord, that as we examine our hearts, You would assure us of Your love and of Your grace and of Your unfailing Lord covenant that You have with Your people. Teach us, O Lord, to walk in Your path, to walk in the light of Your path, of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. And keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.